0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi,
3: everyone. Welcome to the latest episode uh, of New Books Network, uh, Diplomatic History Channel. I'm your host, Grant Golub, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, I'm joined today by two of the most eminent historians studying uh, American foreign relations and diplomacy. Um, right now in the world uh andrew preston and uh chris nichols who um, are both two out of the three editors of the newest volume called rethinking american grand strategy which is out with oxford university press and it was released uh in june of 2021 uh andrew is a professor of american history at the university of cambridge and a fellow at clare college Um, he's the author of numerous articles uh books Um, and and book chapters, including Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, Religion in American War and Diplomacy, and the War Council, McGeorge Bundy, the NSC, and Vietnam. And he's just finished up his term as President of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. And uh, Chris is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Center for Humanities at Oregon State University, Uh, is also the author, editor, um, or co-editor of six books, um, including um, his most well-known one, which is Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age. So Chris and Andrew, thanks so much for, for coming on the show and talking about uh, Rethinking American Grand Strategy. Thanks
2: for thanks having,
1: for having us. With
3: us. So I think before we actually start talking about the book itself, um, it's really important for us to define what grand strategy, um, especially in the American context, um, actually is. Um, this is a term that Um, I think our listeners will have um, increasingly seen um, in vogue in um, the American political discourse, but also in other countries as well. Um, It's something that hadn't really been discussed. um, And now over the last maybe decade or so, um, people are seeing it more and more. So I think I'll direct this first question to Chris. When we talk about grand strategy, um, what does that actually mean and, and what is it being used for?
1: Yeah, so it's a thorny issue, how to define grand strategy. There's a a big literature on the subject. Um, The... You know, some of the foremost thinkers on this, Williamson Murray, for instance, a military historian, argues that there's no simple, clear definition of grand strategy that can ever be fully satisfactory. Um, You find a wide range of of definitions out there, starting uh, back to some extent with Carl von Clausewitz. Um, You can go through a lot of different thinkers. Um, There's been a proliferation of literature on grand strategy, grand strategy programs at places like Yale and Duke, uh, across the UK as well. Um, so most of us, though, are operating under a few core concepts uh, and approaches. Um, one of them comes from a definition from uh, Paul Kennedy and John Lewis Gaddis, uh, which is that um, grand strategy, generally speaking, is about matching necessarily limited means um, to long-term aspirational ends. Um, And it's usually confined to uh, the realm of statecraft uh, and, and comes out of literature and thinking about military policy and hard policy in particular. Um, So, you know, one of the things that we talk about in our book uh, in trying to define grand strategy a bit more broadly and to think more elastically and inclusively about the subject um, is that it's useful to consider grand strategy as a holistic and interconnected system of power um, to think in those terms and to use grand strategy sort of um, as a conceptual framework. Uh, or as um, Hal Brands says, as an intellectual architecture that kind of lends structure to thinking about foreign policy and foreign relations, um, rather than more narrowly defining it, say, in terms of tactics and strategies in military terms. Um, so that's, that's some, some of the framing there for how we think about it in the book and, and how to think about it. But, it, you know, we've heard this term all over the place i mean there are grand strategies in business and marketing universities and higher ed have grand strategies i mean it's very in vogue to talk about strategy and grand strategy i think part of that just broadening out as we think about the history as well um, is that it's uh, it's sort of seductive to talk about the grandness of your strategies, you know, from presidential right. administrations that have longed for for, the, for, for claims of grand strategy um, to CEOs and business leaders to, you know, influencers of various kinds and social media. You know, the grandness of the strategy is partly uh, like in the eye of the beholder or in the eye of the articulator, right? Because they want to make this right. case for their grandness. So then we as analysts and as thinkers then have to really interrogate you know, what makes it grand and what differentiates sort of tra- tactics, operations, and strategy from something bigger. And part of that is that definitional structure I was saying at the beginning, that a- aspirational, big, long-term set of ends. Um, that's really where you find a grand strategy, in my opinion.
3: And so now moving towards the book, Andrew, you know, I think Chris was starting to to sort of get into it. But what, what are the core aims of the book then? I mean, what, what were you guys trying to achieve by putting this volume together?
2: Well, that, that the answer to that question, Grant, sits at the core um, purpose of the book. Um, Liz, Chris, and I, as we were thinking about grant strategy, as we were talking about grant strategy, because the term, is as you were indicating in your intro, um, is ubiquitous and it's increasing in popularity, not just in academia, but in especially in business circles. Um, but elsewhere, when you go to the academic literature, um, which is which is burgeoning on grand strategy and what is grand strategy and what does it entail and so on and so forth, um, it struck us that most of that discussion was about um, statecraft and the military and high diplomacy um, and and those sorts of things, which of course are are perfectly worthwhile subjects uh, to study, and it's something that that um, you know Chris and I. Um, still pay a lot of attention to, but it did seem to us, it did strike us that thinking about grand strategy purely in military terms, which a lot of military historians still say is the only way, uh, the only viable way that you can study uh, grand strategy, that struck us as a little too uh, narrow and a little too limiting. And um, there are certainly people out there who are thinking more capaciously about grand strategy. What is grand strategy? What's it supposed to do? How do we think about it? Uh, as historians, and the program uh, at Yale that's been going for over 20 years now um, does just that. It thinks about grand strategy in, in very, um, in very capacious ways. But we thought that, on balance, um, the literature still tilts, it skews overwhelmingly to sort of the quote-unquote more traditional or conventional military and diplomatic history. Again, nothing wrong with that, but we thought, um, let you know, we need something to sort of complement that to 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 enhance it and to broaden it, not to replace it. And really that was, that was the purpose of the book to take an idea and a concept like grand strategy and to think about it. Yes. In term in military diplomatic terms and lots of our chapters in the book do that, but then to stretch it out and to think about, okay, what happens to grand strategy or what happens to the study of in in, in the case of our book, American national security policy, what happens to it when you toss, um, international adoption and reproductive rights into the mix what happens when you talk toss in global public health or gender or religion or race um, alongside the more sort of traditional focuses and and we were pretty excited uh, by the results that was the purpose of the book and we think that the, that the book even though we, we can't cover everything that, we, right. that the book kind of set has has, has achieved that to some extent.
1: And if I can just jump in, I mean, one of the things that Andrew's written so successfully about um, is religion, the role of religion in American diplomacy and war. Um, and it strikes me, it struck me when we were just beginning the project, that you simply cannot study grand strategy without thinking about religion, which is usually fairly absent, except as a kind of material driver in a diffuse sort of statecraft sense or military strategy sense um, in the extant literature. That is, you know, if you're thinking about the role of religion and faith in guiding individuals and groups um, towards long-term aspirational goals, there there kind of can be no... Bigger aim than evangelization, for instance, or um, you know, sweeping sets of changed commitments um, in terms of lived experience, moral order, all that sort of stuff, right? So, if you if if you study grand strategy and leave out religion, you're you're missing something incredibly important in the intellectual architecture, in the core principles, in the practices, in the kinds of groups that are involved. So, for instance, you know, thinking about non governmental organizations like missionary movements, we've got a really good chapter in the book. By Emily Conroy Crutz, about that thinking about mission strategy as you know, kind of grand strategy and foreign relations strategy. Um, so you know, th- that's the kind of area that that really was, was crying out for this sort of historical analysis. Um, that I think really illuminates what the purposes of the book are in rethinking grand strategy and also kind of what the gains are by rethinking it in the particular ways we've suggested.
3: So when you guys were putting together the book, I mean, Andrew had was starting to to talk about this, you know, all of the different sort of categories of analysis in which we could think about grand strategy. Of course, there's the classic ways that focus on diplomacy and statecraft and and the military. But, um, you know, in, in the book, you all have really sort of broadened it out to include things like national security and and foreign missions and reproductive politics and global health and, and casualties and, and U.S. humanitarian assistance, and, and I could go on. When you guys were putting together the book, how did you decide or did you decide or was it more sort of reflective of the authors that you were trying to bring bring together? How did you decide what types of new categories that you wanted to sort of bring in to this book and therefore broaden the conversation? Maybe, Chris, if you want to start with that.
1: Sure. So, you know, one of the things we did was try to assemble a cast of great historians, mostly historians and, and a couple of political scientists who think historically, some who are practitioners who'd actually worked in doing um, statecraft uh, and kind of urged them to have at it on thinking about and rethinking about uh, the history of American grand strategy. And we were pretty self-conscious in trying to include a number of scholars who didn't identify and still, I think, would probably uh, not identify as scholars of grand strategy um, to try to help us see where there might be omissions in the existing literature or, or what some of the limits are, frankly, of uh, rethinking grand strategy or using grand strategy as a lens. Um, but the as we constructed the conference uh, here at Oregon State that gave rise to the to the to the book and invited authors, uh, one of the things we were, were very um, uh, you know, invested in was trying to get a historical backbone. So what we did was we actually, uh, to the to the project and to the book that would result. So what we did was we actually commissioned four chapters um, that are a kind of set of historical grand narratives written by some folks who are, are really um, good. And I would commend this to readers. If you just want a, a sweeping history of grand strategy, you can read four chapters in our book. It's the second section of the book. So we got Charlie Adele. Um, who's written on uh, John Quincy Adams's grand strategy to begin, and, and sort of walk us from the early republic to Matt Carp, who's who's a, another uh, fantastic scholar who's written on um, the slave power uh, and um, the Southern foreign policy uh, leading up to the Civil War, and then into um, Kate Epstein, um, who's a who's a thinker who comes actually actually out of some of the Yale grand strategy programs and knows a hell of a lot about military policy and naval warfare and. Um, and actually Torpedoes, uh, writing about the late 19th and early 20th century. And then David Milne, who's um, an exceptional scholar of the role of ideas in foreign policy, uh, writing on kind of ascendant ideas since 1919. And so one of the things we tried to do was bring this sweep through just four chapters of what a cohesive narrative of grand strategy would look like. So when you're reading the book. You can get that sense early on and then um, kind of have different frameworks and different approaches to augment that story. And so that's sort of um, the heart of the book. It's easily assignable in classes, but we like to think that it's useful for you know lay readers and um, for even practitioners. And so you, you get some other chapters uh, that push back a bit on received wisdoms about how to think about grand strategy Um, how brands has an early chapter in the book about getting grand strategy right and clearing away some of the fallacies uh, of it, and hopefully we can get into some of those, you know, some of the the fallacies about grand strategy, um, and, and we're really proud and excited about the chapter in the book, which came way before our current moment. Um, by Betsy Bradley and Lauren Taylor, which is about um, actually the PEPFAR program uh, and George H.W. Bush, or George W. Bush, excuse me, uh, and uh, AIDS relief to Africa, and, which helped us think a lot about global public health and global public health grand strategy as something that the U.S. needs and the U.S. needs to be committed to in new ways. And we started talking about this in 2015 and 2016, and now living through the pandemic has totally clinched how important that is
2: yeah if I could just um, uh, add to just a little bit to what to what Chris said, one of the one of the concerns so Chris was absolutely right, we wanted to sort of have this this wide cast of characters or contributors rather um, of people who could approach grant strategy in all sorts of ways, including ways that they normally wouldn't have thought of as grant strategy we We by the same token, we wanted to make sure that we had people who you know were working, were teaching on grant strategy in programs dedicated to grant strategy. So we have Bev Gage and uh, who, who uh, chairs the Yale grant strategy program. We have other people who are well-known for working on on GS, people like Hal Brands and Will Inboden and Jeff Engel and Charlie Adele, um, Kate Epstein. Uh, Chris has already mentioned some of these people. Um, but we wanted to sort of situate alongside them these, these newer approaches. And that's where the big risk was um, where you don't really know what you're what you're going to get. Um, right. we we're really, we're really pleased with the results. Um, but it also means that, you know, you basically um, approach, sometimes it was about coming up with a topic and then trying to find the person. Sometimes it was about approaching a person and saying, you know, how would you think about X, Y, or Z um, in in the framework of grant strategy? Um, and the result is just this, this really capacious, really broad kaleidoscope in looking at grant strategy. And the big challenge for us was bringing order out of chaos um, to make sure that, you know, if you broaden, if you make the notion of grand strategy so capacious, does it, do you make it so capacious that it loses its coherence? We don't think we've done that um, in the book, but that's always a, that's always a danger by the same token. There there's tons of stuff like looking, you know, when I look at our table of contents and I've talked with Chris about this, I think, you know, my God, we could, you can have a second volume here. Of easily um, a dozen or more than that uh, ways of thinking about grand strategy that we didn't cover either because mm-hmm. people said no or because we didn't even think about the think about the topic. Um, so there's still a lot of scope a lot of scope to be done. But you really have to be careful to keep it you know to to keep it coherent. Even if people even if you're never going to find two people who are, are going to agree on a sort of according to Hoyle, this is what grand strategy is. That was the big challenge.
3: I think that sort of goes into what I want to to ask next, which also um, builds on some of the fallacies that that Chris mentioned. That I think you know we should we should spend some time unpacking. But I think it's important first to discuss about what's the difference between grand strategy and just regular you know quote unquote levels of strategy. I mean, is there is there a difference? If there is, what are they? And then how does that sort of lead into or maybe contribute to to fallacies and in the grand strategy debate is, is how Brands talks about them in, in the first, uh, you know, sub- substantive chapter of the book. Chris, maybe if you want to start with that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I usually start uh, an answer to that with some version of going back to Clausewitz, which is where most of the theorists begin with um, to because he made the distinction that tactics are about the use of armed forces. Uh, usually in particular battles and strategy is about what you might call the doctrine of the use of those individual battles for the purposes of winning wars Um, and so then on top of that you put grand strategy which um you know, in the slightly broadened, more hard power military historical sensibility, is about shaping the peace that comes after that war, uh, and that's a useful set of distinctions to get started. Um, but one of the things that that we worked on that we're really quite proud of, definitionally, um, as as Andrew was just alluding, um, is that for us, a theory that bears little resemblance to the reality of the world around us um, doesn't fit. Very well. So, some theories of grand strategy that, for instance, don't take account of gender, race, environment, public health, that kind of thing, um, really don't fit so well. They don't seem so useful, whether or not you're trying to learn the lessons of the past um, and apply them in the present for the future, or just studying them. Um, and we all know that uh, that that grand strategists and grand strategy, to some extent, all of us who study this closely, uh, are taking account of social and cultural factors. There's a uh, sort of the concept of strategic culture fits in here. We're all embedded in cultures uh, and those shape our presuppositions, uh, our our paths forward, you know, our worldviews. Right? Um, right. So that's so that's uh, a, a core set of ways of thinking about this, you know, in, in my mind. And, you know, for me, since, you know, Andrew and I first started talking about this project with Liz, um, for me, a big commitment was to think about grand strategy as epistemology. Um, Okay, so what's that mean for for our listeners? Well, you know, um, it's about structuring knowledge. Uh, Grand strategy is about how you structure knowledge. And in some ways, one of the things we find in the historical record, which uh, confirms our biases as historians, is that tons of grand strategists and people who didn't even identify as such were using history. We're trying to learn the lessons of history um, to shape their strategies moving forward. So history is really essential, not just in the literature on the subject, but in how the actual actors in the moment, in the past, in the historical record, um, were trying to think about better paths forward. You see this from social movements to um, peace activist movements, uh, to black nationalist and internationalist movements. You you see this in lots of settings, not just in statecraft. Um, And that's one of the things that we try to do with the book, is to kind of uncover these hidden strategies and strategists, and also... Um, unpack the kind of cultural factors that were involved um, in the sorts of strategies that they were then developing, and I think that's a really neat, relatively new direction in the literature, and one that I'm hopeful we'll see expanded on but, you know in theses and um, in, in books and articles to come.
2: Hey, Grant, could I just add something quickly to that? Absolutely, um, I, I completely agree. I mean, Chris, Chris and I co-edited this book, so of course I agree with with what he just said. The only thing I'd add to it is that you know you asked us um how do we define grand strategy and what especially how does it differ from normal quote unquote normal mm-hmm. strategy um and chris sort of nailed it in talking about shaping the pieces you know you win the war thats strategy and strategies about tactics and operations winning the battles but then you shape the piece you shape the system the international system around you um in order as stephen walt uh once said the political scientist stephen walt uh once wrote um in order to cause security in, for, for a nation sorry let me start again um it's how a nation causes security for itself. Um, and in order to do that, you have to look beyond just winning a battle or even winning the war. You have to think uh, in, a, in grander terms than that. And to me, and this is what I wanted to add, that, that sort of gets at the complexity of grand strategy. It's something that is inherently more complicated and more integrated and more systemic than just normal strategy. And for that reason, I don't think it's a coincidence um, that the term grand strategy, the kind of way of thinking about Strategy that was grander than just normal strategy um, emerged in the 20th century with industrial warfare and sort of mass ideologies and mass movements and social movements, uh, as well as um, modern military uh, technology. With that increasing complexity, you had to think about strategy in grander terms, um, in not only in order to win a war, um, but in order to win a war that wouldn't sort of annihilate your own society, but then in turn would allow you to to, uh, to sort of shape the peace afterwards and hopefully even prevent future wars. So
3: when we're thinking about grand strategy, of course, there's the actual formation of it, but then it also comes to implementing it, right? And um, I think that a lot of times we spend a lot of time in the literature or in the discussion talking about the first part of it, which is sort of how to conceptualize it and and sort of create the framework. And then um, we don't spend as much time talking about implementation. and And so it's really um, exciting that in a chapter of the book, there's uh, literally a, a chapter title: "Implementing Grand Strategy: The Nixon-Kissinger Revolution at the National Security Council," which was written by by Will Bowden, who of course has spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this stuff both as a historian and and as a as a practitioner. So, um, I guess my question is: How does the how did the ideas and concepts of grand strategy which are you know originally conceived how do those then respond to changing international environments and and changing international events i mean is grand strategy something that's that's static or does it have the ability to um respond um in sort of more broader macro terms to to the things that are happening um you know on a more day-to-day basis what do you think about that andrew
2: I think inherently, by very by its very definition, um, grant strategy would be something that is that that is not static, um, that it's dynamic, and that it can um, shift with changing circumstances, uh, and indeed with you know new leaders or new policymakers or new um, political movements that, that that then emerge over time. Um, the most the sort of archetypal strategy in this case, in the American case is containment, which, you know, lasted for over four decades and really was the lodestar for Republicans, Democrats, for um, all sorts of people um, across, across a long period of time. It doesn't mean that containment was universally successful. You could argue that containment um, had a lot of success in in some ways, um, but then it also led to things like the war in Vietnam um, as a direct result of containment. And there were of course other excesses and other mistakes that containment made. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was an unsuccessful grant strategy. Um, uh, but the thing to remember about containment, one thing that, that made it so, um, enduring was its ability to adapt the fact that it wasn't static. And I think that's, that's true. Not just, I mean, our book focuses on American grant strategy and there are, we explain the reasons for that in the introduction. Um, and but you know other countries other societies over longer periods of time um, have had grand strategies. Those grand strategies don't have to be successful to be grand strategies. You can have failed grand strategies, but they do have to be dynamic, I think, um, and not static in order to think of them as grand strategies.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50%
1: off. Yeah, I very much agree with Andrew on that. I think I would um, add one of the things we were intrigued by that came out of the conference that helped give rise to the book uh, was a focus on questions of implementation, how much that mattered. Um, this, this, what Hal Brands calls the fallacy of, of um, needing to have a grand strategy be quote unquote successful on its own terms in order to count. And, and he rejects that as do we, as Andrew was just noting, uh, grand strategies certainly don't have to be fully successful or even um, you know, fully uh, realized in any, any, in any sense in order to be a grand strategy. Um, but you know, a piece of that puzzle is thinking about the relationship between planning um, and strategy uh, and you know you don't. One way to think about it would be you don't create a strategy with a plan. You execute a strategy uh, with a plan. Um, right. And so if you're looking at say documents in the National Security Council, say NSC 68 is 1950, and you know one of the central pieces of understanding containment and the military buildup that was a core part of that, in the military industrial complex. You know, uh, George Kennan's ideas about containment change a lot, but you can look at some of these documents that are the effective plans to execute that strategy. Right. And that's one way just to to kind of build that up. All right. So you you need a budget, Uh, you need a financial expression of your strategy. Um, The strategy isn't a budget in and of itself. Right. And so people sometimes confuse those constituent parts for the bigger thing. And grand strategy is really about that intellectual architecture not about all of the specific plans. It may be the sum of them, but it may be greater than the sum of them, in fact, depending on specific strategies, historical context, and a whole lot of other variables. So that's why kind of one-size-fits-all definition is problematic when you look at the historical record.
3: Um, since you guys both mentioned containment, I think it's it's worth asking, um, which, is, which is, of course, a term that uh, I think many of our listen, listeners will be familiar with, although I think what it actually means and what, what um and actually comprised um is often um sort of is, is often sort of lost um what do you both think about the idea of containment um you know or what john lewis gas called strategies of containment um being sort of the overall intellectual architecture of let's say american cold war grand strategy and then the different uh you know variations of it such as they existed over the course of um presidential administrations from from harry truman to to george hw bush or to ronald reagan um, were sort of just different executions of that i mean is that the right way to think about it or is it sort of more complex and and nuanced than that andrew
2: yeah i don't know if chris is going to agree with me on this one but i'm a huge i mean i'm a huge fan of of john gaddis's work and i'm a, a really big fan of that book in particular grant the one you mentioned strategies of containment which was reissued, I don't know, fifteen years ago or so. Um, and I was rereading it oh last year, 18 months ago, and it, it was it just astonished me how just how well that book has held up in so many ways. Obviously, you know, scholarship has moved on in some ways and it it, it doesn't speak to the transnational turn and to a lot and to the, the cultural turn, but for what it for what it does, for what it sets out to do, I think it's one of the most I think it's one of the best academic books, um, or, or works of scholarly history that have been published in our field. And I think the core argument that you summarize nicely, Grant, still holds up really well that, um, that containment was this overarching grant strategy that the U.S. implemented in the late forties, early fifties, and that, you know, subsequent administrations after the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, um, you know, deviated from in terms of means, but not in terms of the ends. Um, and uh, and it was, you know, as I said earlier, it was, it was, it, it. Okay, so it it, it definitely um, led to a lot of mistakes. Um, but for the the sort of core objective that the Truman administration and George Kennan set out in the late '40s, um, uh, in terms of achieving that core objective, uh, it was remarkably successful. Maybe you think that objective was not the one that should have been pursued. And that's a perfectly good argument to make. Um, Maybe the U.S. should have chosen a different course between 1947 and 1950 when it was putting containment into place. I think, you know, I I have a lot of sympathy for that argument. I probably would make that argument myself. But in terms of, you know, that's the end that we want. Here are the means at our disposal that we think the, the, the people of our country, that the American people will will support. Um, and then let's, let's put it into place. Um, to me, that seems, that seems like an archetypal successful grand strategy. And I think Gaddis got it completely right when he referred to strategies in the plural uh, of containment.
1: I buy that. Yeah. I think Andrew's onto something, you know, I think another useful caution there, you were setting me up for a criticism, but I'll go with a confirmation that, um, to assess the his- historical successes or failures of a strategy can be a bit of a fool's errand. And to so to say on its own terms that containment, as it changed over time, was fairly fluid, it wasn't static, there are multiple strategies, that, that it achieved many of its ends. For instance, preventing a third world war, a US-Soviet major conflict. This is something Paul Kennedy has also emphasized that, that strategies generally speaking about trying to shape the peace want to maintain a level of peace, uh, particularly in major power warfare. Um, a subset of that, you know another kind of assessment, not so much about that particular strategy would be to talk about all of the secondary and tertiary conflicts that it gave rise to right so then you get to things that you're an expert on Andrew right you know thinking about how the US wound up in the Vietnam war why it was involved for so long you know all the enormous casualties and consequences of other elements of the strategy you might argue um but that aren't central to the thinking that went into what are those long-term aspirational ends, right? So you can have both, I think, is what I'm really saying. You know, that despite all the criticisms, all the obvious ways that you could move forward with a critique of it, you know, the various policies that came forth from the Kennan era and the Truman administration held strong for quite a while and got you to the point where the Cold War ended without a major hot conflict, uh, no major nuclear exchange, for instance, right? Um, but I would also zoom out thinking about our present moment in the same terms, right? Uh, one of the key elements that we don't often reflect on, say, in the long telegram and in, in, in Kennan's thinking in 46, 47, and up through the early 50s was this blending of foreign and domestic, which is part of how we think about grand strategy in the book. And Andrew and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, and he argues that, you know, something like all, all of the efforts to solve internal problems within the U.S. society uh, constitute victories over Moscow, um, to, to paraphrase. And of course, you know Eisenhower argued for an inter- interstate highway system that would improve both the nation's security at home and allow troops to move quickly in case of an attack, right? And you can we can keep running through other examples of this um, over over time. Um, that this blending of domestic and foreign is baked into the archetypal US grand strategy of containment, which I think is useful to just zoom out and reflect on, because that's something that's going on right now in the Biden administration an attempt to blend domestic and foreign very self consciously um, yeah. with a Foreign policy for the middle class, as Biden would call it, or infrastructure uh, projects uh, as part of thinking about withdrawal from Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, again, they're, they're very much blended, and so some kind of schematic way of thinking about grand strategy as only foreign policy um, misses the historical reality, and also misses what's you know sort of glaring at us right today. Um, that blending is is present in the shaping of foreign and domestic policy in our current moment.
3: Chris, just picking up on that on that thread. You know, talking about sort of the blending of domestic and foreign policy um, in terms of both the conceptualization and implementation of grand strategy. I mean, you, you mentioned um, the foreign policy for the middle class, something that Jake Sullivan, uh, President Biden's national security advisor, spent a lot of time thinking mm-hmm. about um, in, between, in the four years between um uh the end of the obama administration now the biden administration something that biden's talked a lot about other senior national security officials have have talked about that but what does that actually mean in terms of um not that maybe necessarily what a foreign policy for the middle class means but what does it mean to actually implement domestic policy within how the united states thinks about uh its its grand strategy abroad i mean is it is it Is it possible, I mean, you were sort of alluding to this, is it possible to successfully implement those things? Because I think that um, a a criticism right now of the Biden administration is that this was a rhetorical flourish that was used during the campaign to uh, get people, to get potential voters to think more about um, what America's role abroad means for Americans at home. But at least in the first eight months of the administration, it's still sort of unclear what that actually means. And so, you know, you mentioned that uh, this has also happened, um, you know, in previous administrations, but I'm wondering if you can sort of elaborate on that more and, and discuss if that actually has been successful.
1: Yeah. So I think one element at work, it's a really good question and it's one we can't solve. And, you know, uh, in a podcast, uh, this will require you know more uh, conversations and articles and essays and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, one thing that I've been reflecting on lately is just how much Biden's, say, first interim national security strategic guidance document and some of his other um, uh, sort of programmatic uh statements including things that Jake Sullivan have said has said um uh how much they line up with things that could have been said by Harry Truman or Ronald Reagan kind of summoning citizens to get out there and defend freedom against the forces of darkness uh that kind of rhetoric um uh, which goes is long standing in US foreign policy and politics Uh, but then also trying to walk that walk, including with the chaos of the stepping back from Afghanistan, saying that part of, you know, defending freedom is at home, is focusing at home. Um, This is something I've studied in other contexts, thinking about, you know, isolationism and internationalism and the delicate balance between domestic uh, commitments um, and foreign ones. And so, you know, one of the ways that, that uh, we see in political rhetoric um, and in the way regular citizens think about um, U.S. foreign policy. And this is an important piece of the puzzle. We've got a great chapter in the book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home by Michaela Honecky Moore, um, which looks at how kind of grassroots regular people, GIs and others, think about foreign policy and it, in both its domestic and foreign dimensions um, and whether or not they uh, have capacious grand strategies. You know, One of the things that we see often in the historical record is that um, that people think about the kind of quid pro quo of domestic and foreign. You, either you can afford a global war on terror or universal health care. You can't right. afford both. right That's a, a very common way that you see regular citizens thinking about you know what it takes to have major foreign commitments um, and then also what the costs are at home and vice versa. So you know if you're going back through the historical record, you know one of the things we find in, in studying grand strategy, you see in this volume and others, um, is attempts by policymakers actually to, to not do that quid pro quo in the rhetoric, uh, but rather to, to talk about the ability to, to pull off both and to generate a kind of uh, consensus at home, right? American citizens are, are notorious for not knowing much about foreign policy um uh, a kind of consensus at home then, that then provides a platform or springboard for a, a bigger grand strategy so a good example there would be you know if you're thinking about again the early cold war is a great moment for this if there hadn't been the kind of um affluence of the of the early 50s for instance you know could the rise of the military and industrial complex have been built like if there hadn't been the popularity of a of an eisenhower you know what would Um, the large scale base structures and other the beginnings of what we think of as kind of Cold War American empire um, have been possible. Um, And the fact that Eisenhower doesn't uh, wind up in Vietnam and another major conflict seems to be part of that puzzle. Um, So I've I've kind of traveled down a, a little circuitous path there. But I think this is an area that actually Andrew maybe can speak to
2: better than I can. Um, no, I'm not sure I could. Um, I think that I, <laughs> think that I think that did a pretty a pretty damn good job.
3: Um, switching gears a little bit, then uh, I mean, actually, Chris, you were sort of mentioning it um, at the uh, towards the end of of your answer, but this is something I've, I'd like to direct to both of you because you both write chapters in the book um, which focus on. Um, well, Chris, you focus on on Woodrow Wilson, but it's also talking more about Wilson's impact on you know people who are not national leaders, right? And and sort of talking about how do non-state leaders, um, you know, people like intellectuals and thinkers and activists, um, those sort of below the national level, how do they think about and conceptualize American grand strategy? And so uh, maybe Andrew, starting with your chapter about national security as grand strategy and and thinking about um uh edward mead earl i I mean i i was wondering if you could sort of unpack what you're trying to explore in this chapter and, and why you see earl's contributions to this idea of national security as being paramount to american foreign policy why you see that as something that's really important for for us to to understand uh today especially in a contemporary context where Um, national security seems to be interchangeable with foreign policy, um, which you would have to, I guess, forgive someone for thinking maybe that was always the case, but but perhaps not.
2: Right. Thanks, Grant. Um, so, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll try and, I'll try and be brief. Um, and also not sort of say so much that it means you don't have to read the chapter. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so Earl was a, we have a, a section in the middle of the book. Um, I forget, I think there are five or six chapters in it. Um, And that section is called recasting central figures. And this is where Chris's chapter that he's going to talk about in a second on Wilson and Du Bois also fits in. So it's a, it's a section of a book on grand strategy where we're taking people who you would, um, you know, immediately identify with grand strategy. People like Wilson, people like FDR um, people like uh, George Kennan and Henry Kissinger um, uh, and others. And my contribution to this section, a chapter on Edward Mead um, uh, is 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 based partly on work that I'm doing on national security, but it's also because Earl is one of the most important um, people. If you're going to look at the ideas of grand strategy, the practice of grand strategy, and the study, especially the study of grand strategy um, in the United States, uh, in American history and in American political science, you have to you have to study Earl because he's the one through um, not so much his own scholarship. He didn't really produce a whole lot, but he did edit this gargantuan uh, study of grand strategy and the making of grand strategy Um, that wasn't just about the United States, but it's in that moment in the 30s and 40s um, and continuing through the 50s and 60s where Earl was one of the most important people in codifying exactly what grand strategy meant. And a lot of what Chris and I have said about what grand strategy is and what it isn't or what it might be and what it might not be Um, comes from how Earl began approaching grand strategy in the late thirties, early forties. You know, when we talk about it as complex, when we talk about it as not just winning the war, but shaping the peace, when we talk about it as integrating, um, not just, you know, integrating military power with not just diplomatic power, but also with social power and economic power and cultural power and a whole bunch of things that all go into this mix and then engage with each other, interact with each other in highly complex ways in order to produce not just a winning war, but then, An enduring peace, an enduring peace that is structured on the uh, values and and goals of your own society. And after World War II into the Cold War, we're talking about American society. And that's certainly um, the society that Earl was thinking about uh, at the time. So if you think of grand strategy in those terms that Chris and I have been talking about, a lot of that comes from Earl. And what struck me is that. As Earl was doing this with grand strategy, which is something that not a lot of scholars have have looked at. I'm not the first, but not a lot of people have looked at Earl's um, thinking on grand strategy like this. Uh, When I got into Earl's papers, it really hit home that actually what Earl was also doing was inventing the category of national security. Because Mm -hmm. before the late 1930s, Americans didn't think, they didn't use that expression, national security. They didn't think about national self-defense in the same way we do. Today, um, and so that that thinking really changed as this new term, uh, this new term of art, national security, was coming into being. At the same time that another term of art was coming into being, grand strategy. And what Earl did was combine the two of them. The other thing I'd just like to flag up about Earl, I've already spoken too much about my my own chapter, but I would like to flag up one other thing that links to something that Chris was saying about before about, and you asked him Grant about. Um, Uh, international politics, foreign policy on one hand, and then domestic politics on on the other. This quintessential, uh, supposedly apolitical figure, quintessential strategist in Edward Mead Earl was actually an intensely political animal. And what I argue in the chapter is that his thinking about both grand strategy and national security um, was driven in part, in large part, by domestic political considerations, because... The majority of the American people in the late 30s, early 40s were against intervening in the world crisis, and people like Earl were desperate to get the U.S. more Mm -hmm. involved. And so in order to convince people, he came up with these terms of art, like national security and grand strategy, to make it, to sort of convince his fellow Americans, as well as the Roosevelt administration, why the U.S. should be um, getting more involved in the world crisis.
3: And and something that I would just add on to that, which I thought was really interesting, in just working on my own dissertation was a, a, a paper, or, um, uh, not an essay, like a, a paper that, that Earl had put together, which was called the changing power position of Great Britain as a factor in the defense problem of the United States and mm-hmm. sort of looking at how do other countries fit into um, sort of the way that Americans need to think about uh, their global power position and, and what that means for for national security, because interestingly, in his copy, um, in the Earl Papers at Princeton, the word "defense" is crossed out and changed to "security," yeah, which then great. he, which then he then sends on to the War uh, and Navy Departments as sort of an analysis of um, the ways in which they needed to start thinking about the post-war peace, which we spent a lot of time talking about uh, grand strategy, not just not just shaping the war, but also shaping the peace after. So I just thought that that there was worth adding yep. on. Um, uh, so moving over to you, Chris, I mean, you're looking at, uh, Wilson and, and Du Bois and, and Jane Adams. Um, I, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about your chapter as well, because you're, you're spending a lot of time talking about figures who are impacted by Wilson and how they start to think about internationalism, um, in the context of sort of the post-World War I era.
1: Yeah. So, you know, thanks for that. And I actually think this is your comment about that shift of defense to, you know, Thinking in terms of security and, and the way Andrew was talking through the really important intellectual contributions of Edward Reed Earl and and, uh, and and institutional and collective ones and bringing people together to foster this sort of area of, of thought, you know, first one thing to think about is that the rise of the term grand strategy is really. Um, simultaneous to these conversations. Of course, that shouldn't surprise us. So 30s into the 40s is when you see grant strategy being bandied about a lot. You know, keyword searches turn this up. Anecdotal uh, historical archival evidence suggests that this is, is spot on too. You know, so as the U.S. is developing... Um, a, a new way of thinking about its place in the world and various policymakers, intellectuals, activists, and others are doing that kind of work. They're coming up with different sorts of conclusions. They don't all agree. Right. Um, but right. one of the things that they, that a lot of these folks that we, we see in the book and that we see in our the historical record um, are grappling with this is in keeping with, you know, what Liz Borgwart, unfortunately she couldn't be here with us, but what her chapter talks about, which builds on her past work on a new deal for the world, the kind of ghost of Woodrow Wilson. Looming right. over all of this is World War One, and and Wilsonian internationalism, uh, a kind of idealism where the U.S. you know um, has a major leadership role amongst nations, builds institutions, international institutions to keep uh, power. Um, properly dispersed to prevent future conflicts. Uh, What is proper, of course, is vigorously contested there. Um, And so, you know, as you move back then over time, one of the things that, you know, really uh, perplexed me in the grand strategy scholarship is that Wilson is often referenced, um, but not often really um, developed in much depth or detail. And part of that is because of this—the ghost of Wilson, uh, Wilsonian idealism in 1919, 1920. The Senate rejecting the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles. His unfortunate stroke leading to him being unable to put forward any kind of useful political and diplomatic policies or compromises in the. 1919-1920 period, um, effectively cutting off the possibilities of, of a U.S. leadership role in a, in a number of ways that, that at least the internationalists of that moment particularly wanted. So, you know, why is that? Well, one one reason that we don't see a lot of Wilson in the historical scholarship is back to that you know fallacy of uh, effectiveness and success. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I note that lots of of the best foreign policy thinkers and scholars for for generations have talked about the importance of Wilson, and yet the importance of Wilsonian thinking about grand strategy is often missing, even as others like Frank Ninkovich have called it the Wilsonian century, that these ideas are there throughout the whole rest of the century. And as a kind of touchpoint, key touchpoint for everybody who's involved in U.S. foreign policymaking. So how do we kind of grapple with that? Well, one of the things that I suggest in my chapter is that, you know, lots of other uh, individuals and groups, especially transnational actors, pick up that Wilsonian legacy and co-opt it and adapt it to their own ends. Um, and if you look there, you actually find a surprising set of possible successes, uh, accomplishments, uh, and new directions. So, you know, um, listeners will probably be familiar with Erez Manella's Wilsonian moment, you know, and looking around the world, how many people peoples and groups around the world picked up the Wilsonian mantle for their own ends. May 4th movement in China, you see this in India, you see this uh, in, in Korea and, and elsewhere around the world. Uh, these aren't people who subscribe to something that, that Wilson would have recognized as Wilsonianism necessarily, a kind of self-determination and uh, anti-colonial uh, kind of nation-state building, um, but uh, they were using his language and his ideas. So you know, anyway, uh, long story short, you know, I focus on Du Bois and Black internationalism and Du Bois's you know path away from uh, his his uh, very brief move uh, to support the U.S.'s role in World War One. Um, and ways to think about, you know, his this great essay actually that comes out before that on the African roots of World War I and how really colonialism in the West are the core problems and you need new kinds of solutions in the international system. And part of that needs to be, you know, the sorts of configurations that become the non-aligned movement, um, actually, in the Cold War. Uh, but then also one of the things that I think is really useful for us to point out um, is inter- international organizations like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Um, so they take up a kind of Wilsonian anti-war ethos, which, had, which preceded Wilson, right? This, this didn't have to come from him, but they use some of that same rhetoric. Um, and they push for things like the Kellogg-Briand pact, outlaw war, um, and they're led by Jane Addams and Emily Balch, the first two American women to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And so one of the arguments I make there is you look at the Wilp, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and you look at their aims and goals. They've got chapters in over 100 countries by the end of the 20s. They're still with us today. There's a chapter here, Corvallis, Oregon. Um, uh, they have to fit a definition of grand strategy for, for a grand strategy to have any meaning, um, that they helped get you know, all of the major powers of the world to sign on to an outlawry of war document in 1927 and 28 um, is really impressive and breathtaking. That that didn't succeed uh, should take nothing away from the grand strategic uh, plans, tactics, and operations that did get them to that moment of success in that era and that they effectively co-opted but also worked with kind of Wilsonian ideals, um, Democrats and Republicans in the 20s to pull that together and pull that off. Um, Bridging the divide between so-called irreconcilables who voted against uh, the League of Nations um, and the Treaty of Versailles and those who were much more internationalists, legal internationalists in the U.S. is really remarkable and worth pausing to reflect on because it does show the kind of grand strategy that was and is possible for transnational actors.
3: In the final chapter of the book, um, which is written by the Harvard historian Fred Logevall, I mean, he sort of takes a more skeptical uh, view of the whole grand strategy concept, the grand strategy debate, and, and I think suggests that um, – or he asks the question, how much does, does grand strategy matter in the context of American history, which I'm quoting. Um, and he he argues that history suggests that grand strategies – uh, I'm again quoting, do not alter the trajectory of great power politics all that much. So, I mean, we spent uh, almost an hour talking about grand strategy in the American context and, and its importance to history. Um, of course, this is a chapter in, in your book that you've both edited. Um, what 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 would the response to that be or, you know, to perhaps a skeptic who, who um, thinks that, you know, a lot of people can spend a lot of time thinking about strategy, but in terms of um, the direction of international politics, it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So what are your thoughts about that, Andrew?
2: Well, we we didn't want for this book to be, um, we didn't want to be cheerleaders for grant strategy, either the, right. the GS programs that teach um, grant strategy in the US and the UK and elsewhere, or for this the scholarship or the kind of cult of, of the great thinker, uh, the master of the universe, um, who sets out his or her vision and then, and then goes and achieves it. Um, and we wanted skeptical voices. Um, and, uh, indeed we, we wanted a few other skeptical voices too, but it turns out that we got, uh, we got Fred's wonderful, wonderful chapter to close things out. Um, and that's deliberate. Uh, we wanted to finish the book with a kind of, um, skeptical voice that asks questions, that probes the utility of grand strategy, um, because that's kind of where um, where we as editors were coming from as well. Um, we wanted to broaden out how we think about grand strategy, um, but underlying that is also a sense of, okay, if we're going to have grand strategy, it needs to be more capacious. It needs to be broader. It needs to reflect the world we actually live in and not Clausewitz's time, for instance, or Bismarck's. Uh, time but do we actually have to accept you know the notions of, of grand strategy one is a, a kind of historical question um you know basically you know the kind of thing that, that grant you said that fred looks at in his chapter you know just how useful is it um when we look at say american military or diplomatic uh, history those are historical questions but then there's also a kind of it's not quite a normative question but it gets more towards the political slash normative questions about just how, why is this grand strategy? Sometimes when you, when you make an effort to come up with a grand strategy, you're actually creating a problem that may not exist. Right. Um, you're, you're, you're fighting wars that may not need to be fought. And I think that's, that sort of brings us back to Vietnam, that it leads you to do things that, that really aren't. And Fred's work on this is, is incredibly brilliant. Um, in several, across several books that, you know, these are wars that, that, or at least Vietnam was a war. And I think we can apply this to post nine 11 wars as well, that actually are, are waged in the name of this grand strategy, but were unnecessary and counterproductive. And of course, incredibly destructive. Yes. To Americans, but especially to the people where these wars are actually, you know, whose, whose countries actually um, host these wars or the scenes of this kind of, uh, this kind of fighting. So I think, you know, if our book, um, uh, makes you think about grand strategy more broadly, that's great. If it makes you think about grand strategy skeptically, I'd say that's also great. Um, really what we wanted to do is ask a bunch of questions and to propose a number of new ways of thinking. And then hopefully there's something that comes out at the end of that, that actually refines our thinking about something as important as grand strategy.
1: Yeah. You know, I've, have, I've have some thoughts there too. I mean, I think Andrew did a great job um, summarizing that and um, really assessing how we approach this and that, that Fred Logevall's final chapter epitomizes, you know, some of the skepticism and some of the broadening elements of, of what a capacious rethinking of American grand strategy means. You know, we, we end the book with two chapters, actually one by Mary Dujak um, on casualties and the concept of grandness. Uh, and there she's looking at the Korean war and that gets at what Andrew was saying, you know, can you call this grand, um, you know, when some of the so-called collateral damage is so horrific of containment, for instance, uh, right. and is, is, is so world shaping in in the atrocities committed and in the in the casualties um, and the way in which a grand strategy operating at the 30 or 100,000 foot level um, is really removed from that, that, that abstracts the realities of the lived existence um, from, you know, the ground on the ground, you know, grassroots uh, experiences of implementing grand strategy uh, and the destruction and chaos or the benefits, humanitarian relief and other things that, that are also detailed in the book and that we think about. So, you know, one of the things that Fred says that I think is useful for us to reflect on as we kind of, you know, maybe we're concluding our conversation, but certainly how we conclude the book um, is that grand strategy can be useful when new things come up um, or, or to paraphrase Dwight Eisenhower, you know, it's all about the planning and not about the plans. And so, you know, when the world system changes, when individual changes happen, um, when there are transformations of various shapes and sizes, um, a gr- having a grand strategy or and having plans, uh, having done uh, rigorous planning um, that can be very useful. Uh, and then, and d- so beware the Hal brands ask uh, fallacy of thinking that they need to be successful or implemented in full for them to matter. Um, so for, for, for Fred, you know, grand Strategy can help fashion a response to emerging threats um, and challenges when they come up. And we're living in one of those, right? You know, pe- the global pandemic. People have been, throughout all of our lifetimes, people have been saying, you know, beware uh, one of these zoonotic illnesses. Beware the next virus, and we've lived through a number of them: SARS and MERS, and 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 avoided some of the worst ravages of those pandemics. You know, there's also been the AIDS pandemic going on throughout all of our lifetimes, uh, pretty much. So, you know, um, but now, you know, year two of a pandemic. Right? Had there been better planning in the world community, the WHO, the UN, the US taking a leadership role instead of stepping back from that, you could imagine a very different world in 2021. Um, with a better global public health grant strategy, starting with the US or ending with the US, however you want to configure that, you know, maybe a less American centric model would be good. Um, but that's a good example of where having a grant strategy and doing that planning can be useful and has been in the past. And the same thing is true you know in some ways with, with the grant strategies such as containment, um, but other kinds of strategies as well. You know thinking about what may emerge and planning for that um, and then being ready, you know, so think about again, back to just this current example, right? Global stockpiles of things like, you know, protective uh, equipment, PPE for medical workers, right? There was, or, or supply chains, and how to keep them running even in the worst ravages uh, of infectious disease. Um, you know, we know that military planners think this way, but why aren't politicians thinking this way? You know, the next pandemic may be worse than the one we're living through today. Uh, And so one of the things that we get out of the book, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, is why did the US step back from a leadership role after World War One when there was a, a health organization baked into the League of Nations? Why did the US not take a more prominent role in the World Health Organization after World War II, even when it was leading, you know, the construction of the UN and later security organizations like NATO? You know, and is there a path forward for the U.S. to develop a grand strategy, you know, in the near term, where it doesn't prioritize its own parochial interests, um, but rather a world community in which diseases. Um, uh, are uh, are now in a globalized world, even more likely to affect us all. You know, and that that very much impacts. You know, it, it, other kinds of questions. Climate change, for instance, is a good one, um, or you know, other kinds of orientations between peoples and groups and nation states. This is something Andrew and I have talked a lot about. You know, if we do that next volume of the book, uh, we need to have cyber in there, and we need to have artificial intelligence in there. Be I mean, thinking about other kinds of global commons questions um, that are very much implicated in in how you plan. Uh, for grand strategies, uh, whether or not the unforeseen things that Fred's talking about um, can be successfully dealt with, having a grand strategy undoubtedly would help and has helped in the past.
3: So, I think for my final question, I'd like to ask you both. Um, you know, if a if a politician or a policymaker were to to pick up your book and and read through, or at least read parts of it, what would you want the main takeaways? of the book to be for them. I mean, if, if someone like the president or, uh, one of his foreign policy advisors or advisors in general were to read this book, what would you want them to conclude from it? And Andrew, why don't we start with you?
2: Oh, just basically think broadly. Um, think about foreign policy grant strategy and very broad integrated, connected systemic terms. I know that policymakers do that because they're confronted with simultaneously simultaneous crises, um, across the world, on varying you know, varying issues on multiple levels, and a lot of times they have to link them. They have to think of them uh, systematically. But um, I would just encourage them to keep thinking like that, and to, as Chris was saying before, to to be imaginative about what kind of crises are going to be confronting us, and to take them seriously, even if they haven't happened. I mean, there was an architecture set up in the National Security Council to deal with epidemics that become pandemics that threaten um, Western and American and global security. And that architecture was ignored and then dismantled. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost um, inexplicable in hindsight, and we shouldn't be having those conversations in hindsight. So that's what I would, I mean, I think policymakers a lot of times don't pay attention to academics, especially historians. Um, But I, I would say that history sort of is offers a really strong cautionary Tail here and that's what i would hope they would take away from from this book in the unlikely event that they read it
1: <laughs> Chris, it's, it's no shock yeah it's no shock that i'm with andrew on that i mean we edited the book together you know i think about I was referencing this uh, one of the last times that we talked the new stat in may's famous book is you know quite a way, ways back in time, thinking in time about the uses of history for policymakers. And, and you know, they, they caution that history is, is, is difficult to use and often policymakers get it wrong. But at right. its best, what I think Rethinking American Grand Strategy can do for policymakers, if they were to pick it up, is to do exactly what Andrew just said, right? One, broaden out how you think about grand strategy. Don't leave it just rooted in military affairs or you know, conventionally defined security questions. Um, none of us live in that world. We all know that we don't live in that world. So don't intellectually reside there. And if you look to the past, if you look to historical examples um, to help us be more capacious in just the ways Andrew was noting, you, know, you have to think about public health. You have to think about immigration. Um, what about demographic change? You got to think about race and gender and sexuality. Um, and again, you know, a lot of the best politicians, the best military strategists, in fact, um, and activists and intellectuals do that work. But somehow grand strategy, as it's been studied and articulated, often doesn't include that or doesn't include it enough, right? There are some great works that do. So I'd encourage those picking this up, the book up, to to be thinking in those broadened terms and adding in those other categories of lived experience, of the culture we're embedded in, um, to to then try to anticipate and to do that strategic thinking um, to solve or address some of the crises we know are to come. Um, And also to look to those examples in the past where grand strategy was wanting. So here we could reverse that fallacy and say, you know, hey, just because it didn't work out, what were the good elements of that strategy as it was developed? What what other paths might have been traveled that would be useful? You know, had the U.S. thought more about post-colonial Movements and been, you know, more involved in them, um, pushing for nationalism in other countries, regardless of whether or not it looked like socialism to some Americans, right? Or thinking about, um, for instance, we find in Nixon and Kissinger, reproductive rights are discussed remarkable amount. amount. And we, we see that in the historical record. What if the U.S. had has been or could be um, more of a global force for women's rights and global reproductive rights or something along those lines? Again, I'm just, just hypothesizing here looking at the historical record. There's lots of paths forward that you can find that weren't traveled or were traveled imperfectly that perhaps could suggest new ways to do grant strategy in the present and for the future. And so for me and for Andrew and for everybody in our book, one of our takeaways was regardless of whether or not you're skeptical or an outright uh, you know, advocate of grant strategy scholarship, the historical record is where you need to start. And if you rethink American grant strategy, you can find some awfully great examples um, that would help policymakers, citizens, students, and others alike really understand what a grant strategy is or could be. Who and what counts as one, and then maybe if they're shaping policy, to do it better. Well,
3: I think that's a great uh, a great way for us to to end our conversation. So I uh, just want to say thank you, Andrew and Chris, for for taking time out of your day to join me. And the book is Rethinking American Grand Strategy, which is available with Oxford University Press, and it was published earlier this year. Thanks to you both. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Grant. Great to be on with you.